Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome history, friends, patrons all, to episode 4 of The Korean War. Last time we looked at Stalin's eastern domains, the extent of the support for communism, his worsening relationship with Yugoslavia, and his propensity to overplay his hand. If Stalin wasn't especially skilled diplomatically, then he had, in spite of himself, built up a block of states which were united ideologically and through fear. The Red Army remained an irresistible tool for leveraging loyalty and obedience out of Stalin's Western neighbours, and Western acceptance of this new order enabled Stalin to further entrench his power through the use of show trials, rampant propaganda, and further five-year plans. The agricultural basis of these countries destroyed, poverty and starvation became bedfellows for much of the Romanian, Bulgarian and 
Hungarian populations, who Stalin could feel justified in punishing since they had, after all, fought for the Axis. I am really looking forward to untangling the diplomatic details between Stalin and Mao, but before we do that, we really do have to, well, explain where Mao Zedong came from, what it was that brought him to the position of the leader of the People's Republic of China. And in this episode, we're going to do that. So I hope you guys are going to join me for this epic journey of mispronounced names and places and words. Don't worry, it won't be too bad. I've made sure to keep all these terms to a minimum so that the story hopefully flows a bit better. For those of you wondering when I'm going to get to the outbreak of the Korean War, or for those of you wondering whether I'm going to further explain my more controversial conclusions, put a pin in those for a while, because for the next few episodes we'll be looking at Sino-Soviet diplomacy anyway, and it won't really be till episode 10 that we actually look at the kind of American aspect of it. Don't worry, all this background is very necessary, and even more importantly, it's all very interesting. So buckle up and join me for this continuation of our unconventional analysis of the Korean War. A huge thanks to all you guys for supporting us so much so far. I really, really appreciate it. I think I mentioned a few episodes ago that I'd received some negative feedback, and since saying that I've received so much wonderful feedback, even from people saying they don't agree with me, but they basically love me and they think that I'm wonderful and, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but you get my point. Thanks so much, and yeah, let's just do this as I take you to the mysterious land of China. The Song of the Week this time, well, the Song of the Week-ish, is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails on Patreon. Well, if you weren't aware somehow that When Diplomacy Fails was on Patreon, then we are. And if you would like to give $2 a month or $5 a month, or even more if you're feeling generous slash insane, then you too can avail of some pretty wonderful perks. You may or may not be aware of them, but let's just run through them very quickly. For $2 a month, you guys can, first of all, you can access the 10-part series, Louis Arms and Armies, which I released to $2 because I love you guys so, so much. That examines the tactics, the strategy, the weaponry, the details on sieges, on naval battles, on bombardment, all that kind of thing that Louis XIV used. And I really enjoyed doing it. I did it over the summer of 2017, just after Five Weeks to Run Wild, and I got some great feedback on it. So check that out if you're not quite ready to leave Louis XIV's era behind just yet. For $2 a month, you can feast on all 10 episodes of that, which is roughly about 5 hours of content, so that's pretty nice. Otherwise, an ongoing perk of the $2 patrons is the fact that they get to access all the episodes of When Diplomacy Fails without advertisements of any kind whatsoever, including any of these moments where I take a few minutes to talk to you about Patreon or When Diplomacy Fails as different ways to support or that kind of thing, so surely that's nice for you as well. You also get the episodes a week earlier, so... All those great perks can be accessed for $2 a month. There's a reason why it's called the Access Feed. It's because for $2, you can access all these wonderful, wonderful perks. $5, on the other hand, is the Extra Feed, because you get, get this, one hour of extra content a month. The most recent extra content series that we did was Jan Sobieski's Life and Times, which was... Well, that wasn't even the official name of it, it as the Jan Sobieski biography, but we ran through his life and times and examined one of the most important actors during the Siege of Vienna story that we built up to, 
and I've received great feedback on that and how the, how the two sides of the story intertwine. So that's just one example. Coming out in the last week of February, essentially to commemorate the fact that we're a year on Patreon, I'm releasing a series called 1956, which is a completely originally researched series by myself, of course, and which will look at the years immediately after the Korean War. More specifically, as hence the name, the year 1956, in which a lot of important things happened. If you want to know more, make sure to email me or contact me through the usual channels. But other than that, When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon, and yeah, it's how I make part of my living. So I really appreciate the support you guys have given me so far, and let's see if we can make some of those goals. Everything from a new podcast on the history of Prussia to so much more. So make sure to check that out, whendiplomacyfails.com, and click on the Patreon banner, or patreon.com forward slash whendiplomacyfails. All the links, as ever, are in the show notes. Thanks so much for your patience, guys. So, in keeping with the tradition established by the previous episode, our song of the week, sort of, this time is the anthem of the People's Republic of China, but without words, because I couldn't seem to find one with words. It should still serve its purpose of getting us in the mood for what's to come, so enjoy it, and we'll be back with episode 4 of The Korean War. In his book, The Rise and Fall of Modern China, historian J. Fenby issued the following withering critique of Mao Zedong's legacy and tenure in office. He said, Mao's responsibility for the extinction of anywhere from 40 to 70 million lives brands him as a mass killer greater than Hitler or Stalin. His indifference to the suffering and the loss of human beings is breathtaking. Fenby's views remind us of the uncomfortable fact which we've surely learned by now. Not all of the victors of the Second World War, or those that triumphed in history full stop, can be categorised as the good guys. Apologists for Mao Zedong, much like apologists for Joseph Stalin, would argue that the transformation of their homeland would not have been achieved without some losses. The whole can't-make-an-omelette-without-breaking-a-few-eggs argument. However, it's pretty clear that Mao's disastrous Great Leap Forward program in the late 1950s, as much as Stalin's punitive famine in the Ukraine in the 1930s, were deliberate, methodical efforts to advance their version of an ideal society without any consideration of the costs. It's very hard to like or fairly represent either Stalin or, in this episode, Mao, since between them they're responsible for as many as 90 million deaths, which is nearly double the accepted casualty list of the Second World War, by the way. Of course, we're all talking in estimations, and there is no need, mercifully, for me to like these figures, even while I examine their impact on the pace of events which led up to the Korean War. However, I will say that Truman seems like a breath of fresh air in comparison to the murderous regimes he cooperated and talked with, and I do prefer, for the record, analysing the American or European sides of things, since it makes me less 
queasy. Obviously, I picked the wrong conflict if I'm looking for uncontroversial individuals or unanimous character judgments, but I feel that, in case you weren't aware, yes, it does bother me that history looks generally quite fondly on men like Stalin and Mao, thanks to their legacies, if nothing else. Mao, like Stalin, greatly benefited from the image boost provided by the experiences of the Second World War, which had the effect of whitewashing their crimes and creating the triumphant image of the struggling hero. In the case of Mao, he has a freaking fast food restaurant named after him, which you can go to in Ireland. I don't know if Mao, as the restaurant chain, is fully aware just what it is named after, or if it just kind of tries to capture the perhaps quaint image of a Chinese leader, which has in many ways been accepted by lots of people today who, unfortunately, don't know any better. But I digress. Mao Zedong was born to a wealthy peasant family in a village called Shaoshan in Hunan province, the day after Christmas in 1893. He was born in the twilight era of the declining imperial Chinese regime. Mao's life was to be frequently interrupted by the transformations underway in China from an early stage. His secondary school education was cut short when the Republican Revolution under Sun Yat-sen spread to his school in 1911, and Mao joined the Republican Army. At this point, Mao was most interested in ridding China of its foreign powers and of restoring China to its old powers and prestige. Incredible as it may sound, representative democracy was Mao's banner at this point, but not for very long. By 1921, Mao had become a convinced Marxist, and in conversations with his colleagues, two of whom were also credited with founding the Chinese Communist Party, it was decided that their burgeoning movement should collaborate with the Republican Chinese. What was the purpose of such a collaboration? Well, Mao and his peers were thinking of the bigger picture, and they sought to bring about the same result later engineered by the infiltration of the Communists into the Social Democratic Parties in the aftermath of the Second World War, in Western and Eastern Europe. For much of the 1920s, though, the major goal was to create an allied opposition to the occupation of various portions of China by the Japanese. Mao wanted to modernise his country, yet he also clung to a brand of Chinese nationalism which would also influence his later reluctance to kowtow to Stalin. Attempting to have it both ways, the 1920s were something of a learning curve for Mao, as he increased the outreach of his party, created new contacts across the massive country, and welcomed in hundreds of thousands and then millions of new recruits into the communist Marxist ideal. Attitudes towards the Republicans were forcibly hardened when the so-called Northern Expedition was launched by the new leader of the Republicans, Chiang Kai-shek, against the warlords of northern China in 1926. While on paper the subduing of the independently-minded warlords in the north would have a stabilising effect on Chinese society, the power vacuum in the region caused a peasant uprising against the landlord class as a result, angering those members of the Republican Party who had been landlords themselves, and drawing the cooperation of some segments of the communists. A revolution, Mao Zedong said, is not a dinner party, or writing an essay, or painting a picture, or doing embroidery. It cannot be so refined, so leisurely and gentle so temperate, kind, courteous, restrained, and magnanimous. Revolution is an insurrection, an act of violence by which one class overthrows another. In time, then, Mao threw his lot in with the aggrieved peasants, and when Chiang Kai-shek returned from his northern expedition, 
he determined to turn on the communists, who by this point numbered only in the tens of thousands. The date was 1927, and this is when the Chinese Civil War's first phase is generally recorded as beginning. It would end a decade later with the outbreak of war with Japan, and the second phase of the Civil War would then begin in 1946, lasting until, if you believe some accounts, the current day, but mostly considered closed once the Republicans slash Nationalists withdrew to Taiwan in December 1949. In the space of 22 years then, the communist movement went from a few thousand members to ruling over the most populous state on earth, and it remains a remarkable feat that Mao managed to mobilise and expand his party's reach in such a way. Taking advantage of his party's image, and the idea that it would stand for the far more numerous peasants, Mao's party was able to garner support from the traditionally downtrodden and maligned in society to create a stable base from which further attacks could be launched on the Republicans or Kuomintang, which I'm only going to say once, just so you know. For several years, Mao and his reduced band of followers were surrounded by forces loyal to the Republicans, and the bitterness of the civil war increased. Mao even lost his second wife when she was captured and beheaded by a warlord loyal to the Republicans. The period is often overlooked by historians, and unfortunately, we don't have time to go into it in much detail here, but two things stand out from the period of 1927 to 1934. The first is that Mao came to command nearly 3 million citizens by virtue of his control over certain pockets of the country. In these pockets, the Chinese were given an indication of what was to become the state policy, as the agricultural reforms, hostility towards landlords, and the removal of non-communist elements characterised Mao's style of rule. Such a determination to implement his ideology even before communism had reached throughout the country demonstrated the ideological zeal which characterised the younger portion of Mao's life. A pattern of behaviour which was mirrored in Stalin, Mao began his movement with a zeal for ideology, and by its end, possessed mostly just a zeal for power. Yet Mao's experience in rule did demonstrate what he was capable of, and it suggested that over a larger demographic, Mao would be just as willing to implement the teachings of Marx and the transformative policies therein, regardless of the consequences. These consequences lead us to point two which we can take from the experience, as Mao's guerrilla resistance, his frequent escapes and his recruitment for the Communist Party undermined what was already a fragile state system in China by the early 1930s. The divisions in China from the 1920s had reached new levels of bitterness and hostility, and Chiang Kai-shek was thoroughly preoccupied by Mao's ongoing campaigns up until the point in 1931 took advantage of their neighbours' divisions with an invasion of Manchuria. By 1933, Japan had left the League of Nations and had also been diplomatically isolated, and events were beginning their familiar march towards the terrible cataclysm of the Second Sino-Japanese War. The early 1930s thus saw Japan take full advantage of the situation, which must have sufficiently stung Mao because he began to divide his forces from 1933 to take on not just the Republicans, but also the Japanese. Mao instructed a guerrilla campaign to continue against the Japanese occupation of Manchuria from 1935, and he was able to issue such orders because in January of that year, in January 1935 that is, Mao had been appointed leader of the Chinese Communist Party's political and military arms. His rise was apparently complete, but Mao was in fact still in the process of completing the so-called Long March. 
This was a heavily mythologized event in Chinese history and in the cult of personality surrounding Mao Zedong, where Mao and his followers trekked from the southeast coastal region of China to the northern hilly interior, in a total distance of over 9,000 kilometers. During this trek, Mao and his followers escaped the Republicans' advance, and Mao re-established his regime. The event was, in short, a strategic retreat from the strongest Republican forces, and a chance for Mao's army to recuperate after years of guerrilla warfare. Yet the fact that only a tenth of those that began the march lived to see the other side should tell us all that we need to know about the typically high cost of such a political statement. In Mao's mind, it was as much a strategic necessity as it was a political statement, and he noted on the Long March later that The Long March is a manifesto. It has proclaimed to the world that the Red Army is an army of heroes, while the imperialists and their running dogs, Chiang Kai-shek and the like, are impotent. It has proclaimed their utter failure to encircle, pursue, obstruct and intercept us. The Long March is also a propaganda force. It has announced to some 200 million people in 11 provinces that the road of the Red Army is their only road to liberation. The march did indeed increase the profile and reputation of Mao's forces, who were instructed not to harm or steal from the peasants during their trek. This inured a level of respect for communism in the same peasants, and Mao was eventually vindicated on the value of his 370-day march, which ended in October 1935. Settling in the Yan province, recast as the Yan Soviet, Mao was made aware of the continued success of Chiang Kai-shek in surrounding and destroying the communists elsewhere in China, reducing the communist Red Army by 90% in the process. Chiang couldn't destroy the communists completely though, and remained deeply concerned at the Japanese intentions, which were made clear in September 1937 when an invasion of China proper was launched. The destruction and atrocities which followed the Japanese invasion convinced many Chinese to join the army against the Japanese, and Mao's forces ballooned in size from 50 to 500,000 by the end of 1937. In addition, by December of 1937, Mao formed the Second United Front with Chiang Kai-shek and arranged to cooperate with his former enemy until the Japanese had been expelled. The civil war, it seemed, was put on hold. This cooperation obviously was not to last. In the portions of China where the Japanese had not reached, running battles over control of these regions remained bitterly contested struggles that undermined any concept of cooperation between Mao and Chiang Kai-shek. Predictably, atrocities were reciprocated by further atrocities, and by 1940 the alliance was essentially over. The picture was further clouded by the appearance on the scene of the collaborationist Chinese nationalist regime sponsored by the Japanese. In a bid to co-opt the support of the Republicans, and split the Allies set against them, the Japanese-sponsored Chinese nationalist forces attempted to attack only the Communists and build itself as a zealous member of the anti-Comintern Pact. Granted limited independence as a Japanese puppet state, these Chinese nationalists were led by a former peer of Chiang Kai-shek, but Chiang never considered siding with the Japanese to destroy the Communists, and the initially impressive effort by the Japanese to further divide China would eventually cease to bear fruit. By the end of the war, which had so horrifically ravaged the countryside, destroyed the country's infrastructure, and led to the deaths of so many millions of people, it was plain that affairs were not as clear-cut as they had once been before. By 1945, the communists were far stronger than they had been since 
Mao's long march away from superior Republican forces, and the war had also forced Mao's forces to organise and modernise on a scale not seen in previous years. In addition, while he was declared chairman of the Chinese Communist Party in 1943, the scale of corruption underway in Chiang Kai-shek's regime ensured that the leadership of the Republicans faced far more problems. Regional expressions of loyalty, the need to consistently exercise bribes and the increasing presence of bands of peasants determined to spread the communist message all contributed to a situation of parity between the two sides. If the gap between Mao and Chiang Kai-shek was shrinking, then in the realm of diplomacy, normative relations remained in place between the United States and the Republic of China and between the Soviet Union and the Republic of China. In both cases, different reasons existed for the Americans and Soviets supporting Chiang Kai-shek's regime. Washington had traditionally supported the more appealingly Western Chiang Kai-shek, that Christian-Chinese generalissimo, pro-American with the beautiful wife, above the harder cell of Mao Zedong, who represented a threat to the Western capitalist system if he could establish a communist China in tandem with the USSR. For a while, Stalin appeared to follow the American lead, and in August 1945, he even signed a treaty of friendship with the Republic of China that granted Moscow great concessions in land and trade, but in reality, Stalin continued to trade with the communists behind Chiang Kai-shek's back, and his cynical double-dealing was characteristic of his attitude towards China in the years to come. Indeed, between the period 1945-50, to Stalin seemed not always certain of what he wanted from China. Initially, support for Mao Zedong had been strong, and one of Mao's greatest assets was the support of the Soviet leader for Mao's communist leadership, which had been offered as early as 1935, after the Long March. As the years passed, Stalin continued to send Mao advice and encouragement while China was plunged into a desperate situation. Having said that, though, Stalin gradually came to see Mao as if not a challenge, then still too independently minded and ambitious for his own good. The concerns of Stalin were aggravated, first by Mao's refusal to hold back when asked to do so during the second phase of the civil war, and second by the emergence of Josip Tito's Yugoslav regime, which was placed in opposition to Moscow by the end of 1948. By the end of 1948, indeed, Mao essentially had the civil war won, and he had achieved an incredible feat in the process, but there was a danger that Stalin would simply view him as another Tito. The ideological fervour of Mao's troops frequently enabled him to triumph over far larger republican forces, and this belief in the power of ideology against greater numbers would in time cost Mao's military plans dearly, such as the occasions when he attempted to seize some of the islands surrounding Taiwan in late 1949 with heavy losses. Yet the communists had more than merely zealous activism on their side. They also possessed the superior tactics and, thanks to their containment in mostly the northwest, they had avoided the same kind of casualties endured by the republicans in the war against the Japanese. Such comparative inaction by Mao's troops likely aided the western image that Chiang Kai-shek was the true Chinese patriot fighting against the evil Japanese occupiers, and this image seriously bolstered the republicans' immediate post-war prospects. The Republicans were, as I mentioned, favoured by Washington, and it was the Republic of China rather than Mao's communists who gained a seat on the newly incepted United Nations Security Council. Each one of these five permanent seats 
was to be occupied by one of the Allied powers of the war, with a seat going to America, Britain, the Soviets and France. And it thus seemed like a vindication of his struggle when Chiang Kai-shek's regime acquired the fifth seat in defiance of Mao's distant guerrilla forces in 1945. Over the late 1940s, after it resumed in 1946, the Chinese Civil War raged with increasing bitterness. Mao's tactics revolved around guerrilla warfare and of permitting the larger forces of the Republic to occupy important towns and cities which had already come under the sway of communist teachings. In the name of the bigger picture, the Chinese Red Army did prove incredibly effective at fighting this protracted war, while Chiang Kai-shek saw his advantages disappear and his armies be bled dry. The communists were far more popular with the peasantry as well, and Mao was far better at mobilising the people of China for a single united purpose than the republican regime was. In addition, the aforementioned corruption and familial ties of so much of the republic's organisations cast a negative shadow over Chiang Kai-shek's regime, while a succession of strategic mistakes which that leader kept on making also dulled his once glorious reputation. Hyperinflation also undermined the efforts of the Republicans to rebuild China after the war with Japan, and the savings of the Chinese middle classes were largely wiped out thanks to the failure of the Republicans to keep a handle on it. In comparison, Mao's subordinates were united under his command. They had the benefit of their appeal to so many hundreds of millions of peasants, and they could draw on an element of the personality of Mao to entice more supporters still. Mao did have a charisma and attraction which... Chiang Kai-shek could not match, charismatic as he himself may have been, and Mao's ability to speak to the lowest rungs of Chinese society enabled him to reach a far greater audience. This is in addition to the fact that Mao was an active writer and released several straightforward pamphlets to the masses in the 1930s and 40s, which only increased the appeal of the Communist Party still further. By the time Nanking was captured in April 1949, the heart of the republican regime had already been torn out. Contrary to the wishes of Stalin, who had come to desire a coalition government to take shape in China to prevent the triumphant Mao from stealing any of his communist thunder after the war, the communists advanced rapidly down south. By the 10th of December 1949, the republicans escaped to the island of Taiwan, where their successor regime remains to this day. Up until 2008, both the People's Republic of China and the Republic of China in Taiwan claimed to be the sole government of China, demonstrating the extent to which the conflict, the Chinese Civil War, in its various phases, remains relevant in China to this day. Mercifully, once again, we don't have to get into these topics, but we have at least now placed you guys in a position where you can understand better the concerns and aims of Mao Zedong as he sought to renegotiate his deal with the Soviet Union and bring the People's Republic of China across the world. Certainly it wouldn't be until the presidency of Jimmy Carter in the late 1970s that normal relations with the Chinese would properly be established, while Taiwan remained diplomatically linked to Washington. One goal above all, and one threat more than any other, the Republicans in Taiwan kept Mao awake at night. Convinced that the United States would intervene at any moment, he aimed to get the Soviets on side to first establish the People's Republic of China in a firm position, and then to present China to the world on its firmer foundations. On the 1st of October 1949, Mao proclaimed the establishment of the People's Republic of China, but his task was far from over. 
As the Americans scrambled diplomatically to keep the two communist titans apart, Mao was seeking to renegotiate that unfavourable treaty signed between the Republicans and the Soviets in August 1945. Stalin at least now accepted that Mao represented the true government of China, but it remained to be seen how the Soviet chairman would act with this new ideological ally. Next time we'll examine exactly how all this played out by looking at the Sino-Soviet talks, the first of four parts of some seriously juicy diplomacy, which culminates with the signing of the Sino-Soviet Treaty of Friendship, Mutual Assistance and Alliance in February 1950. It's a very important part of our story and it's not really very well known today, so I hope you guys will stick around for that for episode 5. Until then, this has been the fourth episode of the Korean War. You are a lovely history friend, or a very valued patron, or perhaps both. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.